red arms. Give it your all. We'll, we'll drink the wine till the cup is dry and kiss the girl so they'll not cry and toss the dice until we fly and dance with Jack on the Shadows. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Tales of a Red Arm. I'm your host, Justin. Today we're jumping into chapter 15, Into the Doorway. So we're starting out with Matt holding this glass-mantled lamp high up in the air so he can see down this corridor. And he's in the belly of the stone. And he's talking to himself about how he not unless his life depended on it, and that's what he promised. He's like, well, this, this does qualify. So before he reconsiders, he heads down a little bit further. And it seems like somebody's been trying to keep it moderately tidy down here. But he makes his way down, and she's looking for this last door, which is what Egwene had told him. And it hung a little bit off the uh, hinges. So he kicks it open, and it falls apart. And the room's just filled with a bunch of dim shapes and crates and barrels and things like that. A lot of dust. And he's like, oh, it's the Great Hold. Looks like a basement of an abandoned farmhouse, only worse. And he was surprised that Egwene hadn't dusted and tidied while they were down here. The woman always were dusting and straightening and even things that did not need it. So there's some footprints across the floor. None of, none, some of them from boots, but they had to have men shift the heavier items for them. But <laughs> we get a little bit of Matt's perspective on Nynaeve, where Nynaeve likes finding ways to make a man work. Likely she had deliberately hunted out some fellows enjoying themselves. <laughs> uh, good little humor. But then he's looking for something very specific, and it's standing out amongst the bunch of the stuff in the basement. A tall redstone door frame looming oddly in the shadows cast by his lamp. When he came closer, it still looked odd. Twisted, somehow. His eye did not want to follow it around. The corners did not join right. The tall, hollow rectangle seemed likely to fall over at a breath. But when he gave it an experimental push, it stood steady. He pushed a bit harder, not sure he did not want to heave the thing over, and that side of it scraped through the dust. Goosebumps ran down his arms. There might as well have been a wire fastened to the top, suspending it from the ceiling. He held the lamp up to see. There was no wire. And he's thinking in his head, well, I mean, while I'm inside, at least it won't fall over. Why? Light, I'm going inside, aren't I? But he sees a bunch of figurines and small things and rotted cloth on this barrel up nearby him, and he pushes it to the side so he can set the lamp down. And Egwene had mentioned it was a Tirangriel. And she probably knew what she was talking about. She had learned all sorts of strange things in the tower, whether she liked it or denied it. She's like, well, she would deny it, but learning to be eyes to die, she didn't deny this, though. So he squints and he looks at the stone door frame. It's duly polished and duller for the dust, but just a plain door frame. Well, not entirely plain. There's three sinuous lines carved deep in the stone, ran down each upright from top to bottom. He had seen a fancier at a farmhouse, but he'd probably step through and find himself still in the dusty room. Well, luck. I won't know till I try, will I? He takes a deep breath but coughs from the dust and puts his foot through. He seemed to be stepping through a sheet of brilliant white light, infinitely bright, infinitely thick. 
For a moment, that lasted forever. He was blind. A roaring filled his ears. All the sounds of the world gathered together at once. For just the length of one measureless step. He stumbles through and stares in amazement. The Tirangrel is still there, but not where it was actually begun at. The twisted stone door frame stood in the center of a round hall with a ceiling so high it was lost in shadows, with a strange spiraled yellow column sneaking up into the gloom, like giant vines twining around poles that had been taken away. There was a soft light, but he hears this sound. It's like a long time, and he jumps, a knife popping into his hand, looking around the columns for the breathy voice that pronounced the word so harshly. A long time, yet the seekers come again for answers. The questions come once more. The shape moved back among the columns. A man, Matt thought. Good. You have brought no lamps, no torches, as the agreement was, and is, and never will be. You have no iron. No instruments of music. The figure stepped out, tall, barefoot, arms and legs and body wound about in layers of yellow cloth. And Matt was suddenly not so sure if it was a man. Or human. It looked human, at first glance, though perhaps too graceful. But it seemed far too thin for its height, with a narrow, elongated face. Its skin and even its straight black hair caught the pale light in a way that reminded him of a snake's scales. And those eyes, the pupils just black, vertical slits. No, not human. And he continues to ask him if he has iron or instruments of music. And it's like, well, what do you think the knife is? But... It's good steel, not iron. So he's like, well, no iron and instruments. Why? But then he cuts off, like, I've only got three questions, according to Egwene. I'm not going to waste it on iron or instruments of music. It's like, why should you care if I have a dozen musicians in my pocket and a smithy on my back? He's like, I've come here for true answers, and if you're not the one to give them, take me to who can. The man, at least male, Matt decided, smiled slightly, but he didn't show any teeth. According to the agreement, follow, he beckoned with one long-fingered hand. Matt made the knife disappear up his sleeve. He's like, lead, and I will follow. He's like, oh, you just stay ahead of me and in plain sight. This place makes my skin crawl. There's no straight lines anywhere except for the floor itself, and he trailed the strange man, and they go through a lot of different rooms. A lot, there's a lot of patterns, a lot of descriptions, so... If you want to get the more detailed description, obviously read it yourself. Um, but he doesn't see anybody else but his silent guide. And he would been, believe that the place was empty except for basically just the two of them. From somewhere, he had a dim memory of walking halls that had not known a human foot in hundreds of years. And this felt the same. He notices a flicker of motion at the corner of his eye. But after turning, he doesn't see anyone there. He pretended to rub his forearms, checking the knives up his coat sleeves for reassurance. And he looks outside of the windows and 
it's a whole other description of a crazy place that looks nothing like the typical Rand land you'd expect. But the walk just seems to be just a really long one, and he's he's wanting to ask questions. He's like, when are, and it's like, he's trying to say, when will we be there? Are we there yet? Yada, yada, yada. But he's like, three questions. It's like, okay. But he has to say stuff or dig for information without asking any questions. He's like, I hope you're taking me to the ones who can answer my questions. Burn my bones, I do, for my sake and yours. The light know it true. Yeah. The peculiar yellow-wrapped fellow said, gesturing with one of those thin hands to a rounded doorway twice as large as any Matt had ever seen before. His strange eyes studied Matt intently. His mouth gaped open, and he inhaled long and slow. Kind of important detail. Matt just frowns at him, and the stranger gives a writhing hitch of his shoulders. If your answers may be found, enter, enter and ask. Matt breathes in his own deep breath, grimaces, scrubbed his nose. That sharp, heavy smell was a rank nu nuisance. He takes a hesitant step towards the doorway and looks around for his guide. But the guy's gone. I don't even know if anything in this place surprises me now. Well, I'll be burned if I turn back now. So he goes into this next room. Spiraling floor tiles, red and white. And there's these three thick coiled pedestals around the heart of the floor spirals. But... And there's no really way up there except climbing the twists. But a man, like his guide, sat cross-legged atop each, only wrapped in layers of red. Not all men, he decided at a second look. Two of those long faces with the odd eyes had a definite feminine cast. They stared at him in tense, penetrating stares, and breathed deeply, almost panting. He's trying to figure out if he's making them nervous or something. Well, not much bloody chance of that, but they're certainly getting under my coat. It has been long, the woman on the right said. Very long, the woman on the left added. If they come again, the man nodded. All three had the breathy voice of the guide, almost indistinguishable from, in fact, and in the harsh way of pronouncing words. They spoke in unison and the words might as well have come from one mouth. Enter and ask, according to the agreements of all. If Matt had thought his skin crawled before, now he was sure it was writhing. He made himself go closer, carefully, careful to say nothing that even sounded like a question. He laid the situation before them, the white cloaks, Certainly in his home village, surely hunting friends of his may be hunting him. One of his friends is going to face the White Cloaks, another not. His family, not likely in danger, but with the bloody children of the bloody light around. A Deviran pulling at him so he could hardly move. He saw no reason to give names or mention that Rand was the Dragon Reborn. His first question, and the other two for that matter, he had worked out before going down to the Great Hold. Shall I go home to help my people? He asked finally. Three sets of slitted eyes lifted from him. Reluctantly, it seemed, and studied the air above his head. 
Finally, the woman on the left said, You must go to Ruidion. As soon as she spoke, their eyes all dropped to him again, and I leaned forward, breathing deeply again. But at the moment, a bell tolled, a sonorous, brazen sound that rolled through the room. They swayed upright, staring at one another, then at the air over Matt's head again. Here's another, the woman on the left whispered. The strain, the strain. The saber, the man said. It has been long. There is yet time, the other woman told them. She sounded calm. They all did. But there was a sharpness to her voice when she turned back to Matt. Ask, ask. Matt glared at, the, at them furiously. Ruidion? Light. That was somewhere out in the waste. The light and the Aeol knew where. That was about as much as he knew. In the waste? Anger drove questions about how to get away from Aes Sedai and how to recover the lost parts of his memory right out of his head. Ruidion? He barked. The light burn my bones to ash if I want to go to Ruidion. And my blood on the ground if I will. Why should I? You were not answering my questions. You were supposed to answer, not hand me riddles. If you do not go to Ruidian, the woman on the right said, you will die. The bell tolled again, louder this time. Matt felt its tremor through his boots. The looks of the three shared were plainly anxious. He opened his mouth, but they were only concerned with each other. The strain, one of the women said hurriedly. It is too great. The savor of him, the other woman said on her heels. It has been so very long. Before she was done, the man spoke. The strain is too great. Too great. Ask, ask. Burn your soul for a craven heart, Matt growled. I will that. Why will I die if I do not go Ruidian? I very likely will die if I try to. It makes no... The man cut him off and spoke hurriedly. You will have sidelined this, this thread of fate, left your fate to drift on the winds of time, and you will be killed by those who do not want that fate fulfilled. Now go. You must go. Quickly. The yellow-clad guide was suddenly there at Matt's side, tugging at his sleeve with those long, too long hands. Matt shook him off. No, I will not go. You have led me from the questions I wanted to ask and given me senseless answers. You will not leave it here. What fate are you talking about? I will have one clear answer out of you at least. A third time, the bell sounded mournfully, and the entire room trembled. Go! You have had your answers. You must go before it is too late. Abruptly, a dozen of the yellow-clad men were around Matt, seemingly to appear out of thin air, trying to pull him toward the door. He fought with fists, elbows, knees. What fate! Burn your hearts! What fate! It was the room itself that peeled the walls and floor quivering, nearly taking Matt and his attackers off their feet. 
What fate? The three were on their feet atop the pedestals, and he could not tell which shrieked which answer. To marry the daughter of the nine moons! To die and live again, and live once more a part of what was! To give up the light of the world, to save the world! Together they howled like steam escaping under pressure. Go to Ruidion, son of battles! Go to Ridion, trickster. Go, gambler. Go. Matt's assailants snatched him into the air by his arms and legs and ran, holding him over their heads. Unhand me, you white-livered sons of goats, he shouted, struggling. Burn your eyes. The shadow take your souls. Loose me. I will have your guts for a saddled girth. But writhe and curse as he would. Those long fingers gripped like iron. Twice more the bell tolled. What the palace did. Everything shook as in an earthquake. The walls rang with deafening reverberations, each louder than the last. Matt's captors stumbled on, nearly falling but never stopping their pell-mell race. He did not even see where they were taking him until they suddenly stopped short, heaving him into the air. Then he saw the twisted doorway, the Tirangreal, as he flew forward it. White light blinded him. The roar filled his head till it drove thought away. Well, I gotta say, that was definitely an interesting voice over, voice acting, whatever, because I was not particularly prepped to do that. I kind of just did it on a whim, so hopefully that wasn't too obnoxious and was hopefully somewhat enjoyable. Ooh. So Matt basically goes in, has a guide, takes him to these three that are a little bit different. And the first thing when I'm like they're describing him is like it sounds like a mummy of some sort. But it's in an alternate plane of existence of some sort. So there's like no direct correlation between the two. And then he has to ask three questions, but before he asks his questions, he fills them in on the details of what's going on and, like, what he should do. You know, the usual stuff. But they're like, hey, you gotta go to Ruidion. And then he's like, "What? why don't I need to go there? And, like, basically he has his three questions to begin with and then just kind of, like, gets derailed completely. And then he gets angry because they're trying to rush him and then basically trying to kick him out. But to be fair to him, they have actually given him more than three questions to ask. Like he gets like six almost because um, he asked the original qu three questions or well, he asked the original question to start off with. Like, should I go back? And then they're like, no, you should go here. And he's like, well, why would I go there? And. I'm not going to do this. Why would I die? Blah, 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 blah. And then basically those are the three questions he's supposed to have. And then he's just like, what fate? What fate? And then they're like, to marry the daughter of the nine moons, which is another one, to die and live again and live once more a part of what was. That's another one. And then to give up half the light of the world to save the world. That's another one. And then they call him son of battles, trickster and gambler. Now, this doesn't make necessarily much sense 
right off the get-go. So it's not something you have to be like, oh, what does this mean? What does this mean? Like, it'll get filled in throughout the story, so just tuck it away for later. They're valid things that you'll want to remember. I mean, we already know Matt's a gambler. We know he's kind of a mischievous person, so that makes sense for the trickster. But what does Son of Battles mean? Well, we don't really know yet because he hasn't been really in any battles. I mean, he's been in like a couple scuffs here and there, like Black and Black Aja. Well, I said Black Aja chasing him, but like Dark Friends chasing him and trying to kill him and all that stuff. And he's dealt with them in little scuffs and skirmishes, but nothing like battle worthy. But basically, he gets carried back by a whole bunch of these guides, chucked through the doorway, and he boom. Now we're having him right back out into the great hold of. The Stone of Tear. But then he, like, jumps to his feet and runs through the door frame. He's like, burn you, you can't throw me. He just flies to the other side of the door. <laughs> then he turns and leaps at it again with the same result. And he catches himself on the barrel holding his lamp, which almost fell to the ground, shattering on the floor. But he grabs it in time, burning his hand, and then, you know, puts it back on the, the barrel. He's like, burn me if I want to be down here in the dark. Light... The way my luck is running, it probably have started a fire and I've burned to death. So he's thinking his luck's not very good, which isn't really the case. But again, that comes later. But he's like, this Tarangrel, it's not working, but maybe the other ones on the side shut it off somehow. And he didn't understand really anything that had happened. The bell, the panic, thought they were afraid of the roof would come down on their heads, but it very nearly had, really. But like, Ruidion, all the rest? The waste is already bad enough as it was, but he's fated to marry somebody called the Daughter of the Nine Moons. Marry? And to a noblewoman, by the sound of it. He would sooner marry a pig than a noblewoman. Took that one away for later. But this business about dying and living again. Nice of them to add that last bit. <laughs> Some black veil Aeolman killed him on the way to Ruidion, and he would find out how true it was. It's all nonsense, and he did not believe a word of it, but the, the bloody doorway did take him somewhere, and they had only wanted to answer three questions, just the way Egwene had said, even though technically he got more answers than he actually originally asked. He's like, I won't marry any bloody mill woman, and I'll marry when I'm too old to have any fun. That's what. Everybody in my bloody... But then a boot pops out, cutting him off, backing out of the twisted stone doorway, followed by the rest of Rand with a fiery sword in his hands. The blade vanished as he stepped clear and he sighed a hev heavy sigh of relief. But even in the dim light, Matt could see that he was troubled. And he jumps at the side of Matt and he's like, whoa, just poking around, Matt, or did you go through too? And Matt just kind of like looks at him cautiously and he's like, the sword's gone at least, but he doesn't seem to be channeling, but how is anybody to tell? Because this is something that we, as the reader, have to keep in constant thought process, and this is something that I think Robert Jordan does a fantastic job of doing, which is constantly reminding us that just because we know that a character knows something doesn't mean that every other character knows the same thing. So we know that Egwene, Elaine, and Rand did their little test with each other about, like, can you test, can you feel if I'm channeling or if I'm holding the one power? Can you feel if you're, like, blah, 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 and going back and forth? But Matt doesn't know the first thing about channeling. Matt has no idea. So he's he's making this comment, essentially, to basically say, hey, 
Matt doesn't know whether or not he's channeling because there's no way to know unless there's like a physical thing. Like if Rand pops his palm up and a fireball pops on top of it, well, he knows he's channeling. But if he doesn't, he could be holding the one power. He could even technically be in the process of channeling something and Matt wouldn't know until something actually happens. But Matt's like, well, he doesn't look completely like a madman. He looks pretty much like I remember him, you know. We're not back at home anymore, but Rand's definitely not who he was when we were younger. It's like, oh, well, I went through all right, and a bunch of bloody liars, if you ask me. What are they? It made me think of snakes. So this will be kind of fulfilled later on, so don't worry about it too much. But you've got the... Um, the snakes basically, um, as they're described by Matt here, wrapped kind of like mummies and stuff. Um, but Rand's like, I don't think they're lying, you know. Not that. They're they're definitely afraid of me right from the start. And when the tolling started, well, the sword kept them back and they wouldn't even look at it. Shot away and hid their eyes. Did you get your answers? Now, keep in mind, he wasn't supposed to carry anything like... Iron, music, stuff like that. But Matt's like, well, it doesn't make sense. What about you? But then Moraine appeared from the Tirangreal, stepping gracefully out of thin air, flowing out. She'd have been a fine dance if she wasn't Aes Sedai, but her mouth tightens at the sight of them. You! You were both in there. That's why. And she kind of, like, vexed. It's like, one of you would have been bad enough, but two Tavirin at once, you might have torn the connection entirely and been trapped there. Wretched boys playing with things you do not know the danger of. Perrin. Is Perrin in there too? Did he share your exploit? Now, I do think this is funny. Where she's like, wretched boys playing with things you do not know the danger of. And I'm like, except you don't know the danger either. Even if you read a book about it, or even if you talked to somebody who had used it before, you are not guaranteed to know all the dangers about it. It's something that's only rarely like used, and the people who would have used it are presumed no longer with us so you can't exactly ask them for details but Matt's like well Perrin was getting ready for bed last time I saw him well maybe Perrin would give him the lie by stepping out of the, the, the door next but might as well deflect the Aes Sedai's anger if he could no need for Perrin to face it too I was like well maybe he'll make it clear of her at least if he gets away before he knows what he's doing bloody woman I'll wager she was noble born and this is the thing, is that she is. <laughs> Which, if anybody's been paying attention, you'd already know that. And if you don't know that, you might need to go back and reread a little bit. It's quite obvious, honestly. Moraine's clearly angry, and the blood had drained out of her cheeks, and her eyes were dark augers boring into Ran. He's like, well, at least you escaped with your lives. Who told you this? Which one of them? I'll make her wish I peeled off her hide like a glove. And Rand's just, like, nonchalant, and he's like, mm, a book. Twas a book. And he sits down on the edge of a crate, and Crosses his arms, very cool, and Matt's like, man, I wish I could do that. It's like a pair of books, actually. Treasures of the Stone and Dealings with the Territory of Mayan. You know, it's amazing what you can dig out of books if you read long enough, isn't it? But then she turns her attention to Matt and is like, oh, did you read this in a book, too? And he's like, I do read sometimes. 
He wouldn't be averse to a little hide peeling for Egwene and Nynaeve after what they had done to him to make him tell them where he had hidden the Amarlin's letter. Tying him up with the power was bad enough, but the rest? It has more fun to tweak Moraine's nose. It's like treasures, dealings, lots of things in books. But she didn't insist that he repeat the titles because he had not been paying attention once Rand had actually brought up those titles. And then she swings back to Rand. He's like, and your answers? And he's like, they're mine. It wasn't easy, though. They brought a woman to interpret, but she talked like an old book. I could hardly understand some of the words. I'd never considered they might speak another language. Moraine's like, the old tongue. They use the old tongue. A rather harsh dialect of it for their dealings with men. And you, Matt, was your interpreter easily understood? Matt had to work moisture back into his mouth. He's like, oh, the old dung. Is that what that was? They didn't give me one. In fact, I never got to ask any questions. The bells started shaking the walls down, and they hustled me out like I was tracking cow manure on the rugs. But she stares still at him, and her eyes just digging into the back of his head. She knew about the old tongue slipping out of him sometimes. I almost stood a, understood a word here and there, but not to know it. You and Rand got answers. What do they get out of it? The snakes with legs. We aren't going upstairs to find ten years gone, are we? Like Billy in the story? And Maureen grimaces and is like, Sensations, emotions, experiences. They rummage through them. You can feel them doing it, making your skin crawl. Perhaps they feed on them in some manner. The Aes Sedai, who studied this Tirangreal when it was in Mayen, wrote of a strong desire to bathe afterward. I certainly intend to. It's like, well, are their answers true? This coming from Rand. You are sure of it? The books implied much, but can you really give true answers about the future? Rand's like, the answers are true, so long as they are in regard to your own future. That much is certain. Now, I don't know how they know that that's certain. Maybe there was some research or something written somewhere in a book. Or the tower had some leftover information about it, or who knows what. It's not like Moraine could have sped back to the the White Tower, done some research, and then come back in a reasonable time period. So, there's that. But, it's like, well, how they do it, the world is folded in strange ways, and I don't know any more than that, but it may be that allows them to read the thread of a human life. Read the various ways it may be yet woven into the pattern. Perhaps it is the talent of the people. The answers are often obscure, however. If you need help working out what yours mean, I offer my services. And her eyes take both of them in, one after the other. And Matt nearly swears. She did not believe him about no answers, unless it was simply generalized eye suspicion. And Rand gave her a slow smile, and he's like, Oh, and will you tell me what you asked and what they answered? But she returns a level-searching look for a response and then starts to the door. A small ball of light, as bright as a lantern, was suddenly floating ahead of her, illuminating her way. Matt knew he should leave it alone now. Just let her go and hope she forget that he'd ever been down here. But a knot of anger still burned in him. All the ridiculous things that he had said they had said. Well, maybe they were true, but if Moraine said so, he wanted to grab those fellows by the collar or whatever passed for a collar in those wrappings and make them explain a few things. Hey, Moraine, why can't we go in there twice? Why not? He very nearly asked why they had worried about iron and musical instruments, but he bit his tongue. He could not know about those if he didn't understand what they were saying. 
She pauses at the door and is like, well, if I knew everything, Matrim, I would not need to ask questions. Oh, fair point. So she appears into the room a moment longer, and she was staring at Rand, then glides away without another word. Then Matt and Rand just look at each other in silence. And Rand's like, well, did you find out what you wanted? And Matt responds with, did you? And then a bright flame pops into existence above Rand's palm. Not the smooth glowing sphere of the Aes Sedai, but a rough blaze like a torch. And as Rand's moved to leave, Matt added another question. Are you really going to just let the White Cloaks do whatever they want back home? They know they're, you know they're heading for Emmons Field, and if they're not there already. Yellow eyes, the bloody dragon reborn. It's too much otherwise. Perrin will do what he has to do to save Emmons Field. And you could tell that Rand's voice was very pained. And I have to do what I have to. Or more than Emmons Field will fall, and to worse than White Cloaks. Which is also a valid point. But Matt watches the light of the flame fade away down the hall until he remembered where he was. He snatched up his lamp and hurried out. What are we on? Light. What am I going to do? And that's the end of the chapter. So, I know it's a bit short. Um, we get a little bit of the snake-like mummified people. Um, the questions descriptions, all that fun jazz. Um, Matt being confused as all get out, which, I mean, obviously the us, the readers, probably hyper-confused unless you know exactly what's going on. Um, and there's just, there's a lot to be desired, I suppose, in this. So, trust me that it, it, it will become clear in time if you are not familiar with the story and if you are familiar with the story you already know it's going to be showing up and you already know what the answers already are there you go um but at least now we know that the the strain of it was because of rand and matt being more in the same area so um tutuviran in this world would be very very dangerous for them so be as it may, Maureen being there as well. I don't know if it was intended to have more than one person walk in at the same time. And apparently they were all talking to three different people, each different person. So it's like they have a different parallel or different rooms that they each take them to or whatever. I don't, I don't really know because, again, there's not really any information on this. But that's something that is more or less a theory. So, yeah. Hopefully you guys enjoyed this particular one. Um, if you guys have any questions or comments or anything, feel free to let, let me know what they are by either Facebook or just Tales of Red Arm. At, and you can also access uh, Twitter slash X at Tales of Red Arm. Or if you want to access my email directly, you can do Tales of Red Arm at gmail.com. And at another way you can do it would be the Discord which you can access through Facebook and Twitter slash X. Um, if you can't find it or it's not working properly, you can always email me directly at the Gmail to, uh, I can have, just send you a link to get you in. And But all the links should be working properly. But yeah, if you would like to uh, join in there, we can chat through uh, posts and forums and style, or we can also do it through... Uh, voice so we can chat I'm usually on there at least once every day 
So that's something we can do. So thanks everybody for hanging out again. We got chapter 16 coming up next and it's a bit of a repeat chapter name title for like the third or fourth time. It just, it kind of gets old after a while, but I mean, with this many chapters in this series, it's no wonder that he might reuse one a couple times over and again. Um, especially when it's so good at describing what's going on. So thanks everybody. Hopefully you'll uh, join me for the next one. Until then. We drink all night and dance all day And on the girls we'll spend our pay And when we're done then we'll away To dance with Jack of the Shadows We'll toss the dice however they fall And struggle the girls be they short or tall And follow young Matt wherever he goes To dance with Jack of the Shadows We'll toss the dice however they fall And struggle the girls be they short or tall Then follow Lord Matt wherever he calls To dance with Jack of the Shadows We'll give a yell with a bloody curse And hog the mags, it could be worse Let's ride away with the dark woods first To dance with Jack of the Shadows yeah. 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 Yeah.